0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org
1: and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. When he was 30 years old, Timothy Simons and his wife moved to Los Angeles from Chicago. Simons was acting in Chicago, but mostly in theater and In Chicago, he could see the ceiling on his career, almost touch it. And Simons wanted to be in front of a camera, so he moved out to Hollywood. No job, not much money saved up. That was about 10 years ago. He gets his first major role pretty quickly after that. A really major role, actually. He was cast on HBO's Veep. Veep just wrapped its seventh and final season. It was great. Veep is, of course, a show about people who work in politics. It starred Julia Louis-Dreyfus as the former vice president, Selena Meyer. She and pretty much everyone around her are all terrible people. They're petty, selfish, scared, and incompetent. And there's probably nobody on the show more petty, selfish, scared, and incompetent than Timothy Simon's character, Jonah Ryan. Jonah starts the show as a lowly staffer in the West Wing, Then he gets fired. Then he gets elected to Congress. Then he, at the start of this final season, becomes a presidential candidate facing off against Selena. He's anti-vaccine, anti-immigration, and anti-math. Here's a little bit of his stump speech. For the last year,
0: I have been crisscrossing the country, warning America about the threat of math to our way of life. Which is why, President Meyer, Senator Talbot, and Governor Calhoun, I have something to say to you. I told you so. He told you so. Yeah. Oh, hey, you remember my five-alarm hottie of a wife, Beth? She just got out of rehab today. Yeah. And plus, while she was in there, she dropped a couple pounds in all the right places, so she's hella even hotter than she was before. Yeah. I mean, not her, man, but... Yeah, sure. Look, I love America, but it is time to face facts. This is a horrific country that is falling apart because it is full of people who are different than me. I was right. And that means I should be president. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Timothy Simons, welcome to Bullseye. It's nice to have you back on the show. Thanks, man. It's nice to be here. I feel like as a radio host, it's my job to give the at-home listener... The knowledge that you put scare quotes around the titles of the names that you mentioned, which are definitely their titles. Which is 100% their titles. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And also, I don't know, it was a big part of the filming, but I don't know if it, I don't know how much it played because I've only seen the finale once. So I don't know if it actually played throughout, but definitely my wife escaped from rehab. (laughs) (laughs) She was not, there was a bit about, needing Amy to pay the orderly who drove her there in the trunk of her car $200 before he left. I don't think that's in there, but there was like sort of a long running joke about how it was clear she had escaped rehab.
1: I gotta be frank, like making a stump speech as stupid and evil as that one Uh does seem like it would be fun. You know, it it was. Like, to commit yourself so fully to something so nonsensical. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of always been
0: his thing generally. Even from the very beginning, like, Jonah's thing. And definitely since since he got on the campaign trail, whenever he's been with people, has been, like, full commitment to terrible ideas. And usually those terrible ideas, they don't even... Like when he like when he got on the like the no daylight saving time thing, it was it had nothing to do with that. It would help anybody. He was just mad that people he kept showing up late or early for things and people would criticize him. So he just wanted to escape criticism. So I was, but but that's always been his thing. I'm just being like full commitment to the dumbest possible thing.
1: The heights of power that he achieves over mm-hmm. the course of the program, you know, over the course of the seasons of, seasons of the show, are really remarkable. But there is no point at which he transcends the power dynamic, which is the lowest status person on earth who is profoundly convinced that they are high status. Like, there's no point where he stops treating every single person around him like they're his peer Even if they're not, he's pure or below him. Yes. Even if they're not like, and just reality becomes warped around it.
0: Yeah. I feel like this still fits in. There is one moment that a friend of mine that I was really happy about that we found when we were performing the scene. But to avoid spoilers, it is toward the end of the finale. And there's one moment where he very clearly like without all of his usual bluster and and sort of like shrieking rage and uh, he just sort of very clearly takes a quiet stand that he like whatever it is you're offering i don't want it because i am destined for x and and it only takes about 30 seconds for him to turn back into Uh, Like a a petulant child. But even in that moment, even like in a moment of clarity where he actually does almost touch power, it doesn't take him long to revert back to that. But he but that is that has been his thing. Like he's just uh, like. When people ask me about, like, does he believe that he can do this? Like, the answer is yes. And he has always believed that he could do it. And he's always believed that he is destined for these things. And when everybody makes fun of him, even at the beginning of the show, when they are basically, when every every room that he goes into, everybody's asking asking him to leave that room, it all just comes down to, like, they're jealous. They're jealous of what I am, and they're jealous of what I'm gonna be.
1: One of the things that's really special about Veep and also was special about the British show that preceded at the mm-hmm. thick of it is how vividly it depicts that the country is being run not by like compelling cool people, not by like competent technocrats, mm-hmm. but by like scared awkward Dorcases. Yes. That like everyone is scared all the time, no one knows what's going on, everyone is an inch from losing their job. Mm -hmm. And the idea that Jonah can rise to the top simply by virtue of the fact that he's too foolish to realize that he's an idiot Mm -hmm. is a very beautiful metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) I may be using the word beautiful wrong, but... (laughs)
0: I think it works. If you if there are no stakes to it, it's the right word. <laughs> it's not necessarily the right word for our current, like the situation we live in. But like to watch these people on television when they're an arm distance away, like, yeah, it's a great word for it. When it doesn't actually affect your real life. Um, I remember there was there were some moments when we were first doing research for the show. One sticks out in that like we it was sort of like the third we would take staffers out for drinks and it was always around the third one that they would really start telling us about their jobs the fir, the first couple they would talk about sort of like the flowery and like the the poetic parts of their job that they really loved but by the third one it, they really just like they would just get ashen and they would sort of their faces would fall and they would tell us the truth and there was this one person that was just like you, you know they were i think they were a communications director they were communications director not like an aide and they said, "Do you know what my job is? My job, and I'm gonna—I won't use the swear words that they use, but they were like, my job is to mess up my opponent's day. Like my job as communications director isn't to communicate what my candidate is for; it's to make sure that my opponent can't communicate what they are for. To somehow turn the day's events so that they are on defense rather than offense. And then, and, and they were like, I didn't expect that when I got into this." I now find that very depressing, that it is just like... That even if you are somebody that gets into it for the right reasons, that the whole thing is going to beat you down. That it ends up being people that are an inch away from getting fired and have been in it for so long that they don't know what the world looked like outside of it. There's, I think that there's something like in, in re-watching the show in the lead-up to this season, like if you go back to the beginning... Everybody on Selena's team, including Selena herself, thought they were doing the right thing. They still had a clear line to making the world a better place. Like she had things that she wanted to do and her team was behind her because they ideologically agreed with her. And somewhere along the line, not only did she lose it, but they all lost it too. It just became like, well, we're just backing her. It doesn't even matter anymore. Like we're just in this now.
1: Do you think that Selena, uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus's character, is more moral than your character Jonah or do you just think that it's hard not to like Julia Louis-Dreyfus?
0: I what the bid there is the big thing of, and this is something that Dave has said before, and so I want to give him full credit because it is a great way of saying it. When people say like, I love Selena Meyer, I want her to be president, he's like, No, you don't. You want Julia Louis Dreyfus to be president. And so that is an apt point that it's just really hard to dislike her even when she's doing terrible things. I think their 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 moralities are different. I don't think Like, Jonah definitely doesn't have a fixed ideology. She may have at one point, but has willingly given it up. Like, everything that she has done, she has done knowing the consequences and knowing, like, why it was bad, but still doing it. And with Jonah, I don't even necessarily know a lot of the times that he knows. So I think that's really just... I mean, I guess would the argument be that she is less moral because she knew what she was doing? I don't know. <laughs> but the things he did are worse. So it might just be like a six of one, half dozen of the other. Like, he was a worse person but didn't know it. And she was not as bad but did.
1: Let's hear a scene uh, with my guest Timothy Simons and Julie Louis-Dreyfus from Veep. So in this scene, which is from uh, earlier in the series... Uh, Selena is trying to figure out what's going on with the president uh, as the Senate and the House are trying to impeach him. And Jonah is there and he's uh, as ever pretending to know more than he actually does know. And she's not nuts about that. Oh, God, I hate impeachments. So 90s. Well, the president now has the Senate and the House after him. It's going to rain pain. So what's POTUS's next move, Jonah?
0: Oh, these lips are on lockdown. Right. You don't know. No, I just have a don't ask, don't tell policy about the things that I know or that I don't know. Jonah,
1: uh-huh. don't talk, don't stay. You need to f*** off and go back to Westworld. But, no, ma'am, no I, you need to f*** off. But, ma'am, I, I off. Three f-s, you're out. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. When you auditioned to play Jonah, were they looking for a you type? Uh, they
0: very much were not. Uh, in, in the character description, it said short, Overweight and bearded, and I am who I am.
1: <laughs> you are uh, tall, thin, and mustachioed right now. Uh, right now, and that's before then, me, uh,
0: before. But even been, back then, there was there was not even a mustache, not even the hint that I could grow a beard at all. I give all credit to Allison Jones for that because she is. I mean, like as like a she's cap-
1: a very brilliant casting director. Yeah,
0: very brilliant casting director, and is somebody who I think. Uh, at least in my conversations with her or at least um, I don't know if I'm basing this off conversations with her or just like um, general casting director conversations is that they there is always the thing that director says very specifically we're looking for this But they also try to be like well Here's another version of it that maybe you haven't thought about and maybe you don't want this but maybe also maybe you do want this and so sometimes they they offer like there's the letter of what they're looking for and then there's the spirit of what they're looking for and I think I was the spirit of what they were looking for and and even in talking to Arm and Simon when they were looking at audition tapes, I was the fir- I think I was the first person in for Jonah on the first day of auditions and so right there like you're gonna get forgotten about and I was against type so you're gonna get forgotten about and in talking to Arm and Simon, they, they they saw it and they were like, oh, that's oh, that's very funny. But he's not short, fat and bearded. And so what are we going to do? And I think it just sounds like they just kept going back to it. Like, well, let's watch that guy again. We thought he was funny. And then that's sort of how it worked out. I think they eventually just talked themselves into like, it doesn't have to be like that. And so that's ultimately why I got cast on it. Because luckily, Arm and Simon decided they, they
1: didn't have to be like that they so realized that what was most important was a kind of pathetic adolescent quality
0: yeah i think so and a feeling that like like that that person who walked in i think that was the thing that i brought to it initially like you know like this last ep- this last season is so drastically different than the first but initially i remember when i auditioned it was just like this guy's the lowest of the low on the white house ladder But because it's the White House ladder, he thinks he is better than every single person in this room, including the vice president. He thinks that he can order her around. And that's just sort of what I went in with that. No matter how pathetic he was, he thought he was better than anybody else and was just sort of easy and breezy (laughs) about that.
1: In your imagination of this character, when is he scared and when is he aware of his actual low status? Is it ever?
0: I think there's only one time that he's actually been found out in his low statusness when Mike and Dan follow him for a day and they end up they end up with him in like a supply closet and he's like set up a little hangout desk for himself and he has like a he has like a Nintendo in there I think that's the only time that he's really been caught in it but even then he has an explanation he can explain anything away
1: we have that clip, so. Oh, you do? Yes. I'm, we're going we're gonna to play it. So, a couple of staffers follow Jonah to his office. It is actually a supply closet.
0: Jonah, hey, busy? No. I just had to get uh, some of these uh, binder clips.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, no.
0: From another building, huh? Yeah, we ran out of the White House. Isn't there a guy, though, that can get that? Ooh. Yeah, I didn't think there would be. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, but he's, uh, he's off sick. Who is Steve? What's poor old Steve come down with? Well, he has diabetes. Oh, yeah. wow, that's a big one. What type? Two. Yeah. yeah. What are the symptoms of two again? Oh, he's just feeling bad. He's, uh, you know he's sugary? Yeah. Uh huh. He's not sugary enough. Right. Yeah. Are there any other uh, symptoms? Uh, yeah, he got uh, uh, fat wrists, you know? Yeah. yeah. You uh, getting freezed out by Kent? We've been watching you, Jonah. You're obsolete. You're like an old VCR with a bigger mouth. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me that, like, in that moment, and I think, like, this maybe is why he never, he will never admit that he isn't powerful in any particular moment, because in that moment, it's like, yeah, he's being froze out by Kent, and Kent doesn't want him. He's Kent has realized that he's an idiot. and and But one thing that Jonah is great at and it's the only thing he's ever been interested in is, number one, his own proximity to power. But he knows, like, which way the winds are blowing. So when Kent comes in, he immediately knows, like, this is the guy that you need to stand next to. And so for the first, like, few episodes of that season, he is everywhere Kent is and sucking up to Kent and taking every bit of abuse. And as soon as Kent's star starts to fade and, and, and Ben... Starts to rise in his uh, in his authority, and and everybody else sort of believe that Ben now is sort of like the North Star. Jonah's right there with Ben, just hanging out in Ben's office, doing whatever is possible.
1: I mean, like literal physical proximity. Yes,
0: literal n- literal physical proximity is the thing that he thinks he can. If he has that, then that will also lead to the benefits of like the like the metaphoric. F- proximity to power. Does that make sense? Yeah,
1: well, I mean, you read about things going on, especially in the White House, and it seems like the main question is who gets to be in the same room as the person who's doing the deciding? Yeah. Like, who gets to spend the most time next, like physically with the president or the secretary, whatever it is? And that is so so weird because there's no other part of our world where like being with somebody is that important. And that hard to achieve. I wonder. Like, do you think it's like that in a corporate office? I kind of do because there is, I mean, like, eventually
0: you'll get to the place where you, like, if you were just to walk into a room, you're like, oh, well, that guy spends a lot of time with the CEO. Like, they must also be very important. It might take you a long time to realize that that person is just an idiot. But for a little while, they're going to be able to trade off the perception that they are very tight with the person who can make the decisions and that that might even lead to them getting promoted somewhere else and then putting them so like so i actually do kind of buy that it's like that everywhere i mean especially now it's really important i suppose like just in real world politics like there is that thing of like our current president like is whoever the last person he talks to is the one that so like that idea of like if you're in the room with him That's like that is an incredibly important position to be in, because if you're the last person that talks to him, that's how it's going to go. I I do think that that's a little bit uh, that's a little bit more of a universal thing than just politics. um, This is a thing that happened a lot when. Uh, We had a consultant who worked for uh, who worked on the Obama campaign, worked in the Obama White House for a few years and I think went off. He is now a Massachusetts state senator. And he showed us he was like anybody that works in the Obama administration, if you go to their Facebook pages and he took me to a bunch of them. Every single person's Facebook photo was like a Getty images photo of the president in which they were in the background of. Because just the fact that they were close enough to the president to be in the same photograph with him meant that they were important enough to be that close. And that was a measure of it. It's a nightmare that those are the people that are running the country like this is this is high school <laughs> level inadequacy. And and in the, and like even like and that's when everything was going great. That's when we were like, yeah, these, that, these, they've got it handled. You know, we don't have to worry about this every
1: day. We'll finish up with Timothy Simons after a quick break. He's the father of two kids, seven-year-old twins. They don't watch Veep, don't worry. And I will talk to him about how being a dad has impacted his work as an actor. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from ZipRecruiter. Hiring used to be hard multiple job sites, stacks of resumes. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done, ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. Then, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply for your job. Try it for free at ziprecruiter.com slash bullseye. Mitch
0: McConnell has become a champion for conservatives. But back in the day, he once got support from groups like labor unions. I mark it down as one of the worst things I've ever done in my life. So you thought about it over the years. Oh, I still think about it. Every time I see his face. Mitch McConnell. A new series from Embedded. Subscribe now.
1: Hey, I'm Anake And I'm James. And together, we are the self-proclaimed Wonder Twins of podcasting and host Minority Corner. We tackle subjects like LGBTQ topics, pop culture. And untold histories of American POCs, like the true story of escaped slave-turned-pirate-turned-Navy-man-in-the-Civil War-turned-Congressman, Robert Smalls. Plus current events from our perspective. Deep-dive movie and TV reviews. You'll also get awesome book recommendations from their neighborhood-friendly librarian. Don't forget my award-winning Jennifer Hudson impressions. And I'm telling you. While never taking
0: ourselves too seriously.
1: Minority Corner. Because together,
0: we're the majority. Every
1: Friday, here on Maximum Fun. Welcome back to Bullseye. I am Jesse Thorne. I'm here with Timothy Simons. On HBO's Veep, he played Jonah Ryan. Jonah was the extremely tall, extremely unlikable White House aide who went on to become one of New Hampshire's least popular members of Congress. So one of the main things that happens on uh, Veep, is a very successful, long-running television program, is people say horrible things to your character. Mm -hmm. And um, this is maybe the most iconic Jonah moment of all time. The vice president's staff gets called into Congress to testify Uh, to some fraud accusations uh, stemming from what was called a family first bill. Mm -hmm. Congress has uncovered a document. The document is called the Jonad file. It is just a list of nicknames that Jonah's colleagues have for him. Mm. Do you recall a document shared on the J-Drive titled the Jonad files? Uh, No, no, ma'am. That doesn't ring a bell. So it's not a word combining
0: Jonah... And go knowledge. I my can all. confirm that that is exactly what it is, and Mr. Egan knows that. In fact, Mr. Egan, I was told that you encourage staffers to add to this glossary of abuse. I do not, uh, at this moment in time, recall the action, uh, nor the uh, document. Okay, maybe this will jog your memory. We have some extracts. J-Rock, Jizzy Gillespie, Jack and the Giant Jackoff, Galian, Tinkerballs, Wadzilla, One Erection. Do we have to go through all of these?
1: I'm not sure that I see the relevance.
0: The witnesses claim they held their former colleague in high regard and I am attempting to prove otherwise.
1: Okay, yeah, sure, no,
0: you can proceed. The Pointless Giant, The 60 Foot Virgin, chimpanzee, Jonah Ono, Hagrid's Nutsack, Scrotum Pole, Transgender Formers, 12 Years a Slave to Jerking Off, Benedict Come in His Own Hand, Guyscraper, The Cloud Botherer, Supercalifragilistic Expiali Dick Cheese, Teenage Mutant Ninja Asshole, Spubaca. Uh, my college friends called me uh, Tall McCartney. I preferred that. That's a good nickname. <laughs>
1: The cloud botherer is my favorite. That's my favorite, too. It's so
0: <laughs> gentle.
1: You imagine
0: just like a cloud, like just trying to gently brush him away.
1: <laughs> I I guess I wonder, and this is actually, this might sound insincere, but it's actually mm-hmm. sincere. Having done this for eight years or however long you've been working on the program, are you ever just exhausted at this room full of talented people whose job it is to make your character feel bad but using things that are actually endemic to you as an actual human being such as your height it doesn't it actually
0: never got to a point where i was like this is a personal attack and because most of the time like i don't know i ended up here for a reason and that's because i like a good joke like I, i mean like I feel like I've put a bunch of them out into the world. Like, I've put a bunch of insults out into the world that I thought were pretty good. And I've always been somebody who has tried to accept it when they come back and, like, appreciate it. Like, like when I have gotten burned, I can be like, oh, f- that's, like, a good burn. And so it never got there. But there were times that, like, they brushed up, where they brushed up against, like, some middle school Uh, Touchstones, I guess, like some things that I like. They poked a few bruises. Yes, they definitely did. And especially, like, there would be times where they would come in and they look you up and down, and then they go. Like the writers would come in, they look you up and down, they go away, and then they come back with one, and it's like you came up with that right now. That's what. (laughs) That's what I look like today. That isn't something you thought about six months ago when I looked tired. This is today. Um, The one that I am thinking of was um, that we were all in a – we were in an SUV, like on a a green screen SUV set, and the writers came in, and then they went back out, and then they came back with uh, melted Play-Doh stuck to a flagpole. (laughs) But the – so – so, yeah. (laughs) So, like, yeah, that one – and I remember even Sam, Sam Richardson, was in the back seat and just went, oh, my God. (laughs) Like, so, like, that one – hurt like that one was a body blow but the the language of the show and i think having an example of the insults working in the thick of it having seen the thick of it and seeing how the insults worked in the world it was never about the insults affecting any of the characters and i think i just also like it was ne- like and it also wasn't ever supposed to be about This isn't supposed to be about affecting your character. This is supposed to be about communicating information. That's just the words that I'm choosing to communicate the information that I'm upset with you. And so, like, the characters never take it to heart. And so, therefore, I never took it to heart. It's just the way the people in this world talk they are just cruel to one another and it doesn't even register if like if the cruelty registered our show would be an hour and 15 minutes long because every scene would be like excuse me you can't speak to me that way <laughs> and then we'd have to settle it you to have 30 minutes of bathroom crying scenes. yes so like it never it never got there but then they're also like so like i am somebody that like likes to throw out burns into the world and will accept them when they come back my way like I am also somebody that knows what I look like you know like I've seen mirrors those you know you played
1: Abraham Lincoln in a television commercial exactly
0: I know I know what I'm about here I'm not setting anything on fire so like you're I a, I handsome. get it you're a handsome man thank you thank you very much handsome. but no
1: I mean like not Stephen Young handsome no but dear very handsome
0: but yeah I mean like I'm a what, what am i like i'm a week four and a half like great i'll i will work with what i got and um so i so i don't know man, it's fine like look like a like a like a a stretched out bird of prey like i get it
1: <laughs> how do you deal with all of the emotional uh pain of acting? like specifically that every time you want to do something you have to ask somebody and they're almost certainly going to say no. I feel like I
0: alternately do pretty well with it and alternately do pretty terribly with it like whenever I get whenever I get like an email that says you have an audition come up I am I immediately go into like an anxiety spiral of like oh this is a nightmare god I'm going to f this up so bad this is going to be terrible. Um And, but at the same time, I feel like I'm pretty, I've gone through it so many times that I'm pretty good about shaking them off. Like I do try to keep like a, a positive outlook on what is my job and what was, what is somebody else's job, you know, that like, if you don't get it, it just wasn't your job. Like there was nothing you could have done. They just, they saw you and somebody else came in and was like perfectly right for it. Like um, I don't know. It's all a work in progress. It really is.
1: You sound like you're trying to talk yourself into it right I, now. I, I,
0: I still am. I, st- I don't know what to tell you. I, I, Like, it's the weirdest thing. Like, these things are not transferable. Whatever confidence you have is literally not transferable into the next thing. Uh, audition-wise, I remember, like, right after our last table read, And I had to go into, like, a director's session for a a movie, which was great. And I went into it, and I was pretty open about it. Like, I I mean, like, I was giving everything I had, but I was giving 100% of 20%. Like, I had absolutely nothing going into that room. And the audition was fine. It was fine. It was Absolutely. I did not embarrass myself in any way. And I also did not impress anybody enough to make them give me a job. And of course, and like, I didn't get it for very good reason, because somebody else walked into that room, and was just effortlessly the person that was going to be in that part. So I don't know, you try to do the best you can. I am talking myself into this as we speak. But <laughs> this is, I guess the reason I brought that up is that like, I came from like the final table read of a television show that had been well-regarded and well-received. And in the same moment that people are telling you that you were a va- like a valuable part of the success of this show, like your specific work in the community of this show and in the ensemble is one of the things that helped it be successful. And it would not have happened if you weren't here. That is something that we all shared, and I was a part of that. I'm not trying to uh, like put myself in front of anybody else. That's something we all did. We all built that together, and it felt awesome. And you felt like you really informed it. You can go into another room that afternoon, and people are like, we honestly don't care. We don't care that you're here, it doesn't matter, you're anybody else walking in here, and the confidence of the morning is literally not transferable into the afternoon. It's the weirdest thing.
1: This was your first television role. Mm-hmm. Um, accepting, I think, maybe some, some commercials. Yeah. Did you move to Los Angeles with an agent and a plan and all the things that you're supposed to have when you show up on the big scene? Uh, I did not. How old were you when you moved to L.A.?
0: I was 30 when I moved to L.A. I had been 30 for like two weeks. My wife and I got married. We went on our honeymoon, went back to Chicago, and just put everything in a van and moved out here. And I had never been to Los Angeles before. I had never even set foot in the town. Like the first time I saw it was like driving in. I think we came in on the five because we were coming from visiting some relatives of her in Arizona. So I think we probably got here on the five.
1: Did you gather advice from people around you? Because you were an actor in Chicago. I was. Yeah.
0: And it was kind of like I was kind of pursuing indie theater. That's what I like. Like indie straight plays. That's what I went out there to do. I mean, like, I pursued advice, but at the same point, there wasn't a lot of advice to pursue in that, like, I couldn't ask people that stayed in Chicago because they had made the choice to stay in Chicago. And so they weren't going to give me advice about Los Angeles that I could listen to. There was always like there was also this half in half out aspect of some of some people that I knew in Chicago who would like go to. And again, this is coming from the perspective of somebody who doesn't know anything about Los Angeles, including what it looks like. But I would meet people who were like, yeah, I went out to L.A. for pilot season, and I was there for six weeks, and nothing happened, and L.A. sucks. And I was like, well, that seems like like a bad idea. Like, of course nobody noticed you were there, because everybody's already there, and you went there for six weeks, and it didn't go. I mean, like, I just thought that was, like, an excuse to—I thought that was just an excuse to just say you want to stay in Chicago. Like, don't move to Los Angeles. So— I, I'm but that's again. That's just me like I am. I am very much a person who is Like a move their sight unseen forever person. I'm a, like a drastic move like when I moved to Chicago I had two bags and a one-way ticket and a friends that I knew from undergraduate school like her boyfriend picked me up at the airport and gave me a ride in town like that's that's how I got to Chicago I kind of t- I, I tend to make drastic moves rather than incremental ones
1: why what are you running from <laughs> not
0: to put too fine a to point on it um, well the first I, I the first thing that i'm running from is that i absolutely love the state of maine that's where i grew up and i absolutely love it and i i as soon as i was given birth to i was like i'm getting out of here I just wanted, I didn't feel like I met a lot of like-minded people. I didn't see a community moving forward. I just kind of like, I was just like, I wanted to be in a city. I wanted to be, I wanted stores to be open later than 7 p.m. You're out in the woods, man. It's scary out in the woods and there's not enough happening and there are better jokes and more people if you move to the city. So I mean, I'm sure there, I'm sure like if I talk to my therapist, that there would be like a lot of other reasons that I could uncover, but that's the first one that comes to mind. Um, There is like the thing of you grow up in a small town, everybody knows your business. And there are plenty of times in my life where I'm like, I don't want all these people to know my business. You move to a city and nobody cares. Nobody cares about you. Nobody cares about
1: knowing your business. You get to
0: be anonymous in a city in a way that's great.
1: You and your wife had. Kids, uh, I guess, if I'm counting correctly, very early in the run of Veep, yeah. Did being responsible for human lives change the way that you feel about or approach your work, or I guess for that matter, your life?
0: I can can generally point to. I mean, this is also like a sort of a serious answer to that question. Is I, it, our kids were born very early into this, into the process of the show. Uh, they, uh, twins are always a high risk pregnancy. Uh, my wife ended up giving birth to them about 10 weeks early. And so we were in the NICU for, uh, for two and a half months. Um, they got out on their due date and everything was fine. They were just very small. They needed to come out when they came out. And, uh, we had a long, we had a long stay in there and there is, I, there is an unbelievable amount of stress that goes into having children in the NICU and if you talk to any other NICU parents like this is a very specific thing um, that has to do with NICU parents and I don't know that either one of us has even fully shaken off how much stress was in there so having children looking back over the past seven years like being honest like it is a life changing thing and that I, I think both of us are dealing with the the repercussions of that amount of stress over such a short period of time and we're trying to find our way back to whatever whatever we were before you know we just it, it's a, it's a it's an alarming thing having kids as much as i make fun of it is actually great it's very hard to do um but they're really lovely and smart kids and they're and they're And man, like when you see them putting good into the world, it makes you feel great that you've actually done a couple good things. Like when you see them sort of putting some sort of kindness onto another human being, you're like, they partly got that from me. Like I had something to do with that. Not all of it, but something I had to do. I had something to do with that. But so as far as the work goes, I mean, it puts a little more pressure on the thing of like, you know, like. Uh, you know, you have to. You, there are things that they need. You know, they're not just. You know, there are things like you know, we, we. They go to a public schools, but you know, they still need to have clothes and like. Certainly, like I'm at. Like, ah, I'm not trying to say that. Like, there are fundamental things that they that they need, and you don't want them to go without that. And of course, there are other things that are, you know, health related. You want to make sure that they have access to, and so that there's always, there's that too. Like we met people who are stressed out about making like SAG minimums for health insurance and like that's, that's a thing. Like you're all, I, I'm always perfectly willing myself to take on those kinds of things but I'm not going to ask my wife or my kids to take that on because I didn't, I don't know, I didn't artistically agree with something I suppose.
1: Well, one glaring thing is that when you have your kids and they're in a the school, you can't, you know take two bags and move to Los Angeles you can uh, but there are you know it's tough
0: it's a tough thing and trying to navigate not only being a good parent but staying involved when you're out of town and and giving them a lot of warning so that the comings and goings aren't so jarring for them i don't know it's 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 a good it's a good problem to have but it also has a lot of you know, it also has a lot of it also is a problem you know like i try to be as present as I can when I'm here and drop them off at school and walk them into the lower yard and watch them play handball. The rules of handball on an elementary school playground are absolutely astounding. It like created by a community of children, but I'm into it and to this point where sometimes like, I'll be standing with another parent, like when seeing a game of handball out of the corner of my eye and I'm like, that's a bullet, that's a do-over. And somebody <laughs> be like, bullet, do-over. And I'm like, got it, got it. It's really amazing. And there's like a difference between a wham-bam bullet and like somehow that's legal, but a regular bullet is not legal. A bullet is when the handball doesn't touch the ground before it hits the wall. It hits the wall first and then it's the ground, then hits the ground. Um, I don't know, man. I'm still trying to figure it out.
1: Uh, the rules of handball or
0: parenting? Uh, both. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely both of them. Um, the rules of handball, I feel like I, if you gave me a couple weeks, I could get a firm grasp on. I'm never I'm never going to be full and know, know fully what I'm doing with the kids.
1: Well, I'm so grateful that you took all this time to come be on Bullseye. It was so nice to talk to you, and I've so appreciated your work on on Veep for all these years. Thanks,
0: man. It was a fun gig. It's really weird thinking about it in the past tense.
1: Timothy Simons. The final season of Veep is totally bonkers and super hilarious. If you've watched Veep once already, maybe watch it again, because the mean jokes and insults are so dense, you probably missed some of them. Also, Andy Daly is in the last season, and Andy Daly is maybe the funniest person in the world. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where someone brought in a bunch of fresh squares of sod for a patch of dirt over by the lake, but it was only enough sod to cover maybe like half of the dirt patch, so it looks sort of like a game of Tetris down there. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow is Jordan Cowling. Our interstitial music is by DJ W, the great Dan Wally. Thanks to him for sharing it with us. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation. It's by the band The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. And before you go, there are so many past episodes of this show. You can find them on our website, MaximumFun.org. You can also find them on YouTube just by searching for Bullseye with Jesse Thorn. If you only search for Bullseye, you get like... A, an EDM hit from like five or ten years ago. So don't so you have to add the Jesse Thorne part. Uh, we are also on Twitter at Bullseye and uh, also on Facebook at facebook.com slash bullseye with Jesse Thorne. So be sure to like us there. And that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.
0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of maximumfun.org and is distributed by NPR.